tenure at will. There are still lots and lots of reasons that you cannot be fired. This does not mean that the employer can do whatever they want with you. It's very difficult to do a really clean alteration of the record. So well, you can't. It's all in the metadata. They know when you're when you're in there. You can't. It is impossible to. Hi, Rick Bucata, Rachel Linder, Risk Management Monthly, coming to you. This is uh, November 2nd, um, which is uh, actually not so good because it's really the uh, October issue we're doing for you. Uh, for you. We, we have a lot of good excuses, but you probably don't want to hear them. The, um, we wanted to get every piece of medical legal information for the month of October. Actually, it's kind of interesting. We got, we got a case yesterday, a $75 million case, which we'll talk about it at the end if uh, we have time. Rachel presented three lectures at the recent ASAP Scientific Assembly, and I attended one on contracts, which I thought was really uh, very well done. And I thought, well, you know, everybody has a contract of sorts. If you're an independent contractor, well, you certainly do. And even if you're an employee, you, you have a contract of sorts. And so... Rachel's going to get us up to speed on some of the nuances of, of contracts and some of the traps that you can find yourself in when uh, you are um, having a contractual dispute. Um, my last little thought here is like, I think comments, uh, contracts are like divorces. You only pull them out of your drawer when you want to end the relationship. At the beginning, yeah, everybody's happy. Everybody's uh, slapping each other in the back, shaking. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then the contract, ah, don't bother with that, you know. And then at the end, it's like, hey, they were mean to me or something like that. I want out. And the fact of the matter is, is that's when you pull the contract out, and that's when it matters. Rachel, um, th this is, was a half-hour talk at uh, ASAP, or was it longer than that? Uh, it was... Longer than minutes? that, yeah. Oh, was it an hour? Yeah. Okay. But I can go faster. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we're going to have Rachel's slides come up on the screen. Uh, I want to thank Megan, who's uh, keeping us on the straight and narrow here, uh, uh, audiologically and visually. So uh, shoot her up those slides, and let's go and take a look. All right. I think I didn't know you were there and then you came up and and got me after the talk and you said something like that actually wasn't bad. Oh, uh, come on. Go on. All right. Uh, let's see. What's it sharing here? Anything? Yeah, we see the slides. What is it? OK, you do. Yeah. OK, state contract nightmares. Yes. Right. Picture of San Francisco. <laughs> You know the woman that's in in this picture here, this ASAP picture in the, in the center there, that is uh, Fred Dennis's wife. Uh, Fred Dennis uh, is an ER doc from uh, uh, an old timer now, but that's his wife, and she always come every year uh, with Fred to the uh, meeting, and she uh, has was on everybody's slide in every talk that was given that that during that conference. Funny. So I meant to take this off of the ASEP template, so it looked like I made it just for you all, but I didn't get around to it, so very sorry. 
anyway, Contract Nightmares, I didn't get to to title this myself. ASAP did that. And then they also assigned the specific topics within the contracts that they wanted me to touch on. So, and then I added a couple more. Due process, indemnification, non-competes, force majeure, and then some some miscellaneous things that I added. This was actually a learning experience for me because I have never signed a contract in my life. So uh, I had an interesting time learning along with this. So talk you, about not. You don't have a contract in mail? No. You're, uh, that's really strange, isn't it? Don't judge me. Yeah, it is strange. Um, that's kind of one of the things it's known for. It's it's. There's no contract. Um, you know, once you've worked at a place for a certain amount of time, there's kind of a an implied contract that's binding as well, but there's no written contract. Hmm. So hmm. it's kind of a good faith contract. I'm not recommending that. <laughs> um, so non-compete agreements. This is, I think, one of the hottest topics in contracts, and so I'll start there. Non-competes are actually a type of restrictive covenant, of which there are several different types. And this is anything that places a restriction on what you can do when the contract ends. So the types of non-competes that we generally think about are geographic prohibitions and time prohibitions. So these are things within the contract that usually say, you know, after the contract ends, you can't work within a certain number of miles of your employer. You can't work within the same county of your employer. The really important thing, you know, they seem very straightforward, but the most important thing on these is that you have to consider, especially as the nature of these employers is changing, especially in emergency medicine, is that you're considering employers that have multiple groups, multiple locations, these satellite locations, because you can't assume that those geographic prohibitions only relate to the site that you work at. If you have a group that staffs multiple emergency departments scattered across your area of the state, that geographic prohibition could well hold for all of the sites in that area of the state. And it could be much, much larger than you're anticipating. And so really important if you're sitting down thinking about signing the contract that you not only understand and have the same understanding with your employer about what that geographic prohibition actually pertains to, but that it's written out as you know, 10 miles of that particular site, or if it is all the satellites, that you both understand that. The time prohibitions, this one's pretty straightforward. It's hard to kind of misunderstand this, but one thing I'll point out is that usually these are inversely related. So if you're signing a contract where you have an extensive geographic prohibition, usually that's with a much smaller time prohibition and vice versa. So if you see a contract that has both a large geographic prohibition and a long time prohibition, there's probably some wiggle room there, room for negotiation. You shouldn't have to be committing to, you know, extensive time and geographic prohibitions for those non-competes. Other restrictive covenants that you might see would be non-disclosure agreements. These really weren't common in, you know, contracts of old because there weren't really special things happening in a lot of emergency medicine groups. But now as more and more people are working for these big corporate groups where they are investing a lot of their own resources and figuring out kind of their own patient risk assessment tools, their own patient flow algorithms. More and more often, they are asking you to sign non-disclosure agreements to say, you know, if you ever leave this group, you can't tell people about what we're doing here. You can't go share this algorithm with your group. And really important that you understand that once you've signed that, you know, you can be held liable for or, you know, held accountable for damages, et cetera, if you go share that with your next group. So be aware of what you're signing 
and understand that, you know, there are financial penalties for breaking those agreements. And then non-solicitation agreements, this basically says they come in two flavors. You're agreeing that you either are not going to, if you leave, try to attract other employees away from the group to go work with you at your new place and that you're not going to try to attract other patients away from the group with you. So these are all kind of the most common forms of restrictive covenants that you might find in your contract. Any comments on these, Rick? No, I think it, I, I think they're all, all good. And I wasn't really kind of aware of this relationship between the time prohibitions and the geographic prohibitions and their inverse relationship. So no, I, this is good stuff. I tried to find a number of contracts to see, you know, how often are you going to find these? In the primary care world, it's published that about 50% of primary care physicians have some restrictive covenants written into their contracts. I couldn't find an equivalent number for emergency physicians, but it's a significant number. Isn't, isn't um, this prohibited in state, some states? Some states do have legislative restrictions uh, saying not on restrictive covenants in general, but for example, for non-competes, they say they're not allowed. That doesn't mean that they don't show up in the contracts. It just means they're not gonna be enforced. But interestingly, in those states, the employers will often still write in non-competes because they're just counting on the employee not knowing any better, looking at their contract and saying, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Not understanding that there's actually an authority higher saying it's not enforceable. There is a higher authority. Good to know that. <laughs> All right. Moving on. So in the states that don't have any legislation saying that non-competes are kind of overall non-enforceable, if these things get brought to court, basically courts in general, while these are all kind of state-specific, states across the country have all landed on kind of tests of reasonable to decide if, you know, a relationship is severed, so a person leaves their job and they violate one of these restrictive covenants and there ends up getting taken to court, whether or not this restrictive covenant, whether it's a non-compete or one of these other ones, is enforceable, the courts are going to decide, they're going to look at this and say, well, is it reasonable? And when they determine whether or not it's reasonable, they often are employing this four-part test to, to determine that. And the four-part test breaks down into these four questions. First, did that employer have a legitimate business interest in placing that restrictive covenant? Was that particular restriction reasonable to protect its interest? Or did it unduly burden the employee and then did it harm the public? And then they balance the answers to all the questions to determine whether or not it was reasonable. And you can imagine this four-part test kind of being reasonable and playing out when you think of kind of how medicine was practiced in the old school ways where you had a primary care physician who set up shop and you know, had a bunch of patients that came into their office and then they trained a new doctor as kind of an apprenticeship model. And what they're really trying to do is prevent that new doctor from kind of learning all the ways, getting to know all the patients, and then going and hanging their shingle, you know, down the street and stealing off, siphoning off all those patients. That's really what this, you know, these non-competes and these tests of reasonableness were trying to kind of determine. But when you think about our landscape of emergency medicine, where you have these huge corporate groups that are employing a single physician, and then they're going to a different emergency department where we're really not kind of attracting patients in the same way, 
it's unclear that these tests of reasonableness are really applicable in the same way. But yet this is where courts still are. You know, the, the law doesn't evolve at the same pace as business. And so this is still the test that's being applied for these restrictive covenants essentially across the country. So still good to know that this is this is what, how those covenants are going to be assessed legally. You know, some groups uh, really, they uh, they tout that their contracts don't have any non-competes in them uh, so that they, they feel that confident in what they're going to be doing to make this physician feel that this is a good place to work. Yeah, and that would make it more attractive to, you know, myself for sure. Again, I don't have a contract to look at, but I did go around to some of my friends and ask them to send me their contracts. And so I pulled out some language from one of those contracts that was sent to me. This was uh, not, it's labeled non-interference, but it's essentially a non-solicitation uh, agreement, which is a form of restrictive covenant that we talked about. So I'll just, we can just look at it and see. So this is from one of these corporate medical groups. And it basically says the employee is agreeing that during the contract and for 12 months after it's terminated, the employee won't directly or indirectly solicit to provide ED services at that hospital, nor are they going to try to persuade the hospital to terminate its relationship with that employer, with that corporate medical group. But nothing will prevent that employee from working at that hospital um, in the absence of solicitation, inducement, or persuasion. So if the hospital kind of independently goes to that employee and wants to hire them, that's fine, as long as the employee isn't the one that kind of starts that process. So you can see how this kind of clause is trying to balance this test of reasonable. They're basically saying the employee can't be the one that starts all this. We're not saying they can't work there. They just can't be the one that that prompts it. So just one example of one of these restrictive covenants from an actual contract. Tangent of this with uh, regard to the, um, the fact that in many situations, uh, emergency physicians can be terminated without any due process through the medical staff's rules and regulations. And there's a push for saying, you know, that's not right. If you're on the medical staff of the hospital, independent of your relationship with an employer, you should be given, um, you know, a hearing as to uh, whether uh, this is a kind of an appropriate thing to do. And I think that there's a big push for physicians to want to be able to appeal their their um, termination or something to that effect to the hospital medical staff. So I have a whole section on due process too. All right, then I won't interrupt anymore. No, you, <laughs> but I'll save that one for when we get to it. Okay, uh, case examples. I'm gonna skip this because. I'm trying not to go by full hour, but I will talk about this one. It was an interesting one. This is actually the only case that I found that dealt with a non-compete dealing with emergency medicine. Certainly there are more, but in the, the cases that I'm looking at, they're mostly cases that have gone to appeal. So, um, or ones where they were just settled um, or had a verdict that was reported on that a, a, a court reporter happened to be sitting in the back of the courtroom. So Anyway, in this one, it was a case from Indiana in 2000, emergency physician named Bronk basically signed a non-compete saying if he ended his employment contract early, he could not practice emergency medicine or any ambulatory care either in his county or the neighboring county for two years. So had both a geographic and a time 
non-compete. And if he broke that, he would have to pay the former employer two years' salary. So he left his first ED job early within that two-year time frame and then went and worked in the neighboring county. So, um, you know, basically did what he said he wouldn't do. And then they turned around and said, okay, now you owe us two-year salary. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And so they brought him to court, like seemed pretty clear cut. And the trial court said, nope, we think the non-compete's unreasonable. We're not, we, we declined to enforce it. And the group said this crazy, you know, he signed this. We don't think anything is unreasonable about this. And they went to the appeals level court and the appeals level court, <coughs> they agreed with the trial court and we can see what the appeals court, what their reasoning was. They basically said in applying this, this test of reasonableness that we talked about that four part test, they said, there is no evidence that patients are selecting ERs based on which physicians are working there. The trial court says this is different than cases in which physicians are leaving a practice and attempting to take patients with them. You know, like when they're hanging a shingle down the street, there's no evidence that any ER patients of the first hospital became patients of the second hospital just because the physician was employed there. That first hospital didn't show it had any protectable business interest in trade secrets or other confidential information from, you know, that this employee took with them. They showed no injury as a result of the physician's termination other than the fact that they had to, you know, hire and replace, they had to hire somebody else to replace him. Thus, the hospital made no showing it had protectable business interest, which would make the restrictions of a non-complete clause reasonable. So basically, they let this guy skate, no penalty. You know, he signed this non-compete, said he would pay this penalty, but when it, when push came to shove, nothing. You know, that ignores the fact that they took him to court, they took him to appeal, Presumably, all of that was very costly for him. So it's not like he got off scot-free, but in the end, didn't have to pay his two-year salary. Overall, you know, I don't want the message to be that as an emergency physician, you are off the hook for non-competes. I've seen lots of conversations like in EM docs and similar forums that essentially say that, like, hey, don't worry about your non-compete. I know a friend who didn't have to, you know, who just walked away from theirs. And then like a bunch of posts saying, yeah, it's cool. Like you're good. You're in emergency medicine. I think that's really awful advice. Um, it really is very dependent on where you live, who your judge is, what the political climate in the state is. There's a huge variation across states. Um, I won't go into this long winded example here, but just know in general, there's, there's a lot of variation geographically, um, temporally, very hard to predict. If you have a non-compete, really you need to, you know, hire a lawyer who knows what they're doing in employment law to figure out what are the chances that you're going to be stuck with this. And that's really the only way through it because you can't predict based on, you know, some, something that happened a year or two earlier, what's going to happen to yours. There are kind of some, there's some been some federal movement in this space. Like in 2020, the AMA basically asked the FTC to get involved and the FTC said, no, thank you. And then last year, you know, Biden basically told the FTC, no, no, you actually have to get involved with this, not specific to physicians, but just in general, like we don't want non-competes because we think they're, they're limiting worker mobility. And the FTC has kind of uh, horned in on a couple of cases, which mostly deal with blue collar workers. So really like the idea of non-competes for physicians is still kind of pie in the sky that there's going to be some, you know, something big coming in and making these a non-issue for physicians. So for the time being, they're very unpredictable, very much depends on where you live, the judge you have, how, 
you know, aggressive your employer wants to be. So all the advice that you may be seeing from other, you know, well-meaning people saying just ignore it. I think you you've got to take that with a grain of salt. Anything else, Rick? Good advice. Sounds like good advice. All right. Here's your due process. So this idea of due process is super controversial. You know, we hear about due process a lot. Theoretically, you have due process protected for you in a lot of ways. There's a constitutional right to due process, right? People say this. The Constitution gives us this right to due process. And theoretically, it does. You have it in the Fifth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment. But if you look at those, what you really have there is uh, due process for life, liberty, and property. You know, when you think about losing your job, nobody's talking about taking your life. Nobody's talking about taking your liberty. And then the question, you know, are they talking about are they talking about taking your property? Well, the the courts have weighed in on this actually, and they've t- they've said that your job is not your property, with the only exception being a government job or a tenure track at a government institution. So that doesn't apply to most emergency physicians. Um, so unless you work in one of those, the constitutional rights to due process do not apply to you. So we can just kind of be done with those. Um, interestingly, they do apply to your medical license. So you do have due process when it comes to that, but also not what we're talking about. So we'll move on the, you know, recognizing that maybe we do want due process for our jobs. The federal government stepped in in 1985 and enacted the healthcare quality improvement act was enacted in 1986 says that if there's going to be disciplinary action against a physician, there are there's a threat of them losing their jobs. They do need, if you're at a hospital that receives federal funding, you need to have due process measures in place, which involves standard fact-finding procedures around peer review actions, essentially looks like a court case. Basically like 30-day notice, you have a right to hear what the allegations are against you, you have a right to a hearing, you have a right to representation, you have a right to appeal, basically like a a full-on court case. You have a right to this if you work in a hospital that receives federal funding. So as a result of this, pretty much every hospital went out and created these due process bylaws that say, okay, we want our federal funding. We're going to create all these bylaws. Awesome, right? So like you have that right. The problem is these are waivable. So when you are employed, when you get hired, the hospital can say, we have all these due process bylaws, but if you want to be hired here, just sign this stating that you'll waive these rights. And if you want to be hired there, chances are you're going to waive those rights. And so a large portion of the time, because these are really expensive procedures, hospitals don't really want to have to go through them, they're going to ask you to waive those rights. And furthermore, when these, when patients or when uh, physicians are being hired through like private staffing agencies, the staff, the hospitals may ask the staffing agencies to ask the physicians to waive their rights or the staffing agencies themselves might do it. Cause what benefit do they get out of this, but committing to an expensive, you know, problem ridden process. And yeah, really, most of the uh, contract places uh, would like you to basically be able to be uh, um, terminated at will. If right. you, particularly if you're a, a um, if you've got a, contract with them now employees could be terminated as well as uh, also but it's a, a little bit more uh, tricky uh, I think to do that because employees have rights contractors generally don't 
So I think you have some rights uh, working at Mayo. You know, so even though you don't necessarily have a a contract, I don't know that they can necessarily say uh, see around without some good reason to uh, defend the decision. Um, So your job's safe. (laughs) But but the, the fact of the matter is that a large percentage of people have waived their rights, whether or not they're aware of it or not. And this allows the hospitals to continue to receive federal dollars. They're technically meeting all the requirements by having the due process laws in, pro- in place, but the the physicians aren't actually guaranteed access to those due process laws because they've waived them somewhere along the line. So all these signatures on the right here are basically um, you know, groups of the you know, heads of emergency medicine, ASAP, AAM, SAM, et cetera, saying, um, you know, writing in, asking for a law to make these due process laws unable to be waived, saying these these exist for a reason. Please make it illegal to waive these rights. And essentially, these cries have gone unheeded. These rights remain waivable. And the way that they're waivable, the most often, you know, most common language is something like this. The relationship between the employer and employee is at will, terminable by either party with or without cause and with or without notice. And and that's what is, you know, found in a lot of a lot of contracts these days. And really the pressure is on the physicians now because there's with this oversupply, you know, you walk away from this contract and somebody else is likely going to pick it up. So then the question I asked is so if you have this contract, can you be fired for any reason? Are there any reasons that you cannot be fired? And I think that this is an area that people don't really understand fully. And I think it's really important for people to, um, I just want to make people aware of that even when you're at will, there are still lots and lots of reasons that you cannot be fired. This does not mean that the employer can do whatever they want with you. You still have rights under a, a number of different laws. So primarily under the Civil Rights Act, but also under a Supreme Court ruling of 2020, under some modifications like from 1978. Basically, you can't be terminated because you're old or young, um, because of your race, because of your sex. As of the Supreme Court ruling, I think in 2020, that includes sexual orientation, um, national origin, religion, pregnancy. That was from like the, I think, 1978 disability. So if you think, you know, you're an at-will employee and you think that you were terminated because of one of these things, that's actually like you could potentially have a lawsuit there. It doesn't matter that you're at-will. Those are not lawful reasons that you could be fired even when you're at will. So don't understand at will, meaning that you're dispensable for any reason. That's just not true. And then in addition to that, in Arizona, um, even contract employees now have protection against whistleblowing with this law that we've talked about in here before, that if you are a whistleblower for the next six months after that, if you're fired, the presumption is that you were fired because you are the whistleblower. So you have that protection there. Whereas you know, that's being used as model legislation for other states, but right now it's only in Arizona. Yeah, that's our friend, uh, Dr. Amish Shah, who is on the Arizona legislature. Um, and this is a bill that he got through uh, because one of his friends 
uh, had uh, this kind of uh, nasty thing happen to them. And so he took up the, uh, the, the ball and ran with it and was successful. And um, it doesn't seem unreasonable that this should be made a national law. And so they're, ASAP's, I think, now trying to do the same. But, you know, these are things that are re really hard to change. In, 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 and I think that Dr. Shah was particularly uh, adroit at getting this law passed in Arizona, which is not one of the most <laughs> liberal states in the country. All right. So let's say you do get to the point where you are fired, let go, whatever word you want to use. And so you're asked to sign a severance agreement. This can go by a variety of terms, separation agreement, termination agreement, whatever. It's basically you're signing something saying, all right, we're letting you go here. We want you to sign this agreeing that you're not going to sue us. And so um, when you do that, you're agreeing not to sue. And you, so you're giving up a right is you have a right to sue the employer when they fire you for whatever you think they did something wrong. That's a right you have. So when you give up that right, they have to give you something in exchange for that. Otherwise, that severance agreement is null. So <coughs> it's it's they have to give you something. It, they can't just give you something they already owe you. So it, like they can't just give you your pay that's due, your vacation time that's already due, your sick time that's already due. They have to give you something in addition. Otherwise, that severance agreement is completely invalid. Um, and then there's lots of protections for a severance agreement because these are often, there's the recognition that these are often like signed under duress. So not only can they not just give you what you already do, they also, there's a ton of protection. Like I think they have to give you something like um, seven days to think about it. They have to give you 21 days to recant on it. They have to give you the ability to consult an attorney. Um, it has to be in terminology that's employee for you to understand. Um, there's tons of kind of criteria to, to affirm that this was not done under duress. This is all from the EEOC. And if any of these are violated, then this is totally invalid. So even if you're in the position where you're being terminated, you sign something saying, I'm not going to sue. And then like a month later, you think, you know what? This was crap. I think I was sued because, you know, I blew off my hand in those fireworks and I can't intubate people anymore or whatever. Um, it's because of my disability and that's wrong. You can go back and say, I, that was done. I didn't understand what I was doing. Like it might violate the EEOC's terms there. So understand that even though once you've signed something, there's a ton of protections against severance agreements. So if you ever feel like I signed this, but actually I didn't understand what I was doing. Actually, I regretted I was, it was done under pressure. I, I feel coerced. Probably it's not valid. So these, these often can be undone once they're done. All right, let's talk about some examples. Um, all right, so this first one, I starred the name because I feel like our community is so small, but this was emergency physician in Bullhead City from about 10 years ago. Basically, she was working on a contract with MCARE to staff a hospital, and she was fired. And she basically, she sued the hospital and said, look, I didn't get, you. your hospital has due process bylaws, and you didn't follow them. I, you know, nobody ever told me why I was fired. I didn't get my 30 days. I didn't get to represent myself, all that stuff. And they said, yeah, but that's because you only had temporary privileges. You weren't really a hospital employee. You were just kind of a supplemental and therefore you don't get the, the due process. And um, went to the jury trial. The jury said, yep, that's right. 
due process is not um, granted to temporary employees. And they awarded the, they found a favor of the hospital and they actually said that the employee had to pay the hospital's legal fees, which I thought was excessive. Uh, I'll skip to uh, Rice, just in the interest of time. So in this one, emergency physician had signed a five-year contract, which had a four-cause termination clause. So they could only be terminated if they did something wrong. And that contract said that if they were going to be terminated, they would go through the due process of the hospital. And at some point during his contract, he was pushing a cart in the hall and hit a female nurse with that cart. And at a little after that, he was fired for sexual harassment. And he sued and said, you know, this is crazy. Not only was I not harassing this person, but I, you know, shouldn't have been fired and I did not get due process. I, the contract says that if I'm going to have this a disciplinary action against me, I'm supposed to go through this due process. And he went through a jury trial and the jury said, yes, you're right. You have due process in your contract and it didn't get followed. And they gave him over $2 million for that. So, you know, there is sometimes it um, due process works or the the right to it works. And if you have it guaranteed and it isn't followed, um, people do sometimes hold the hospitals accountable. Anything, Rick? No, I think that uh, there's a lot of stuff here that I just kind of like... uh assumed that that I thought I knew, but there's a lot more uh, nuances to it. That's why you need a, a, a lawyer to hand uh, walk, walk you through any of this stuff. Oh. Uh, be, while you're getting into the agreement and when you're trying to get out of the agreement. Yeah. All right. Uh, trying to cherry pick some of the best ones. So let's do... Let's do this last one, Harper. So the third one down here. This was a wound care physician, signed a contract with the group, and it had a four-cause termination agreement on it. And after he got started, he started billing Medicare, and nothing was getting reimbursed, and they realized he wasn't eligible to bill Medicare. So the group terminated him because like all of his patients were Medicare patients. He was pretty much worthless to them if he couldn't bill Medicare. And he sued for wrongful termination, saying... You know, this there was nothing in the contract saying that he had to bill Medicare, so he shouldn't have been terminated. And uh, so the jury ended up awarding him about thirty thousand dollars in his guaranteed wages um, because they agreed with him that he shouldn't have been fired for this reason since it wasn't in the contract. And then also ninety thousand dollars in lawyers' fees, which I just found interesting because that the ninety it was. The, the lawyer's fees were over three times more than his unpaid wages, just to kind of highlight how expensive some of these cases can be. So that he had sued for wrongful termination just based on the fact that, you know, what he got terminated for wasn't based on the contract. But I just think it's interesting to highlight how expensive it can be to bring a case like this. Yeah, I think the topic of wrongful termination uh, is really one of interest because uh, it relates to so many physicians. I mean, there are terminations all the all the time, uh, and uh, sometimes the reasons are pretty straightforward. 
many times uh, they're not. Um, I think that, um, you know, you have heard stories in, in the past where, well, we'll make you a part in a group if you work for three years and uh, at the, as the three-year term comes up, they said, well, actually, we're not going to not going to do that. And the, the person has worked all the nights, all the weekends, all of the uh, the, the uh, suboptimal shifts, didn't get paid the same wages as everybody else in the uh, assumption that if he kept his nose clean, he would be made a partner. And, uh, and you, I've heard most stories of, well, when the time came, they just said thanks. And that was it. And. Um, that's why I think that if you're going to do something like that and you're going to have a promise of potential partnership after you work, you shouldn't be working nights and weekends and um, uh, that are not being ad fairly compensated because if, in fact, you don't make partnership for whatever reason it is, you, you should still have the ability to say, well, I was paid fairly for the nights and weekends that I worked. Uh, I mean, if there was a nighttime differential, I got it. Uh, and I didn't make less than the other physicians because I was on, on a partnership track. And that's, you know, if you're a lawyer, you know, a lot of lawyers don't make uh, don't, don't make partners. Uh, it works butt off in, in an attempt to become one. And ultimately, they, they don't. And they've... Uh, put a lot of sweat equity, but it never, never got materialized. All right, let's move on to another topic. So this is about indemnification clauses. This is something I added because it came up just in my research about these, about kind of uh, concerning contractual things you might find. So to indemnify basically means to take on somebody else's liability. And so you might see these written as you know, you're agreeing to indemnify. They might use that word. They might say hold harmless. They might use language that uh, isn't so obvious, but basically that you are agreeing to take on the liability of the hospital, medical group, whatever it is, from any and all damages or liability, something to that effect. And, you know, when you write it like that, it sounds crazy, but it's really common. And you might think, okay, well, I have malpractice insurance. So, you know, I'll just sign this and we're good. But actually, indemnification is generally not covered by your malpractice policies. You can sometimes buy a separate malpractice policy to cover it. But like, why would you do that? Um, ASAP has recognized that these are super problematic. And they basically said they're dangerous and unfair. Don't commit to them. If you see them in a contract, you should basically seek alternate employment. So, you know, walk away. Um, but they're still really common. And just let me give you an example of how these play out. Well, first of all, an example from a contract. Um, again, we're from one of these corporate medical groups. So fees for medical services. This is, you know, this is what it's under, the, the title that it was under. So when you read this, you might just kind of gloss over this if you're reading through a contract. This doesn't say like shifting of liability to you. It says fees for medical services. But Employee agrees to indemnify employers and its subsidiaries and affiliates for any and all liability, loss, or damages, including attorney's fees, penalties, fines, and expenses related to any action, including investigation by Department of Health and Human Services or any state agency in any way arising out of activities. You can see it's just like a bunch of gobbledygook um, related to the billing and collection activities undertaken by the employee pursuant to this agreement. So basically, you're going to indemnify the employer against any like liability related to fraud, like billing fraud. 
why would you ever do that? But that's what you're agreeing to. This is for a big corporate group. That's, you know, one of these big giant ones. That would be crazy. But you're like, probably like hundreds, thousands of you have signed this. So um, anyway, I hope you all have a separate indemnification policy. Uh, let me give you an idea of kind of how this has played out for other folks or how it, it can play out. So this is a real case. This is from Missouri. In this case, a patient went to his primary care doctor. He had rectal bleeding. Patient did an exam and said, yep, you've got a hemorrhoid there and an anal fissure. That's where your bleeding is coming from. He went back to him a few times. was like, ah, doc, I'm still bleeding. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you still have a hemorrhoid. Um, and ended up with like some weight loss some belly pain. Eventually went to an ER and had some imaging and subsequently was diagnosed with this aggressive colorectal cancer, had a colostomy. They basically said, you know, it's too late. It's everywhere. You're going to die of this. And patient sued the physician for missing the diagnosis. And patient family settled with the physician for $65,000. But as part of that settlement, they reserved the right to sue the hospital. And so physicians signed the settlement. They got the $65,000. I think they needed the money for treatment at the time. The hospital and hospital says, okay, you know, we're, we'll go to, we'll go to court with you, but we're going to bring in this physician for a cross claim because, you know, the physician's our employee and he signed an indemnification agreement, basically agreeing that he's going to cover our liability. You know, when he was hired, he did this. So the, the jury's, you know, the hospital goes to court with the family. The jury awards the family $300,000 from the hospital and the hospital says, okay, no problem. And then they just tag the physician and say, okay, pay up because you signed this indemnification claim. So then the hospital has to pay or the, the physician has to pay the hospital share. So he already paid the 65, but because he had this indemnification plan came, yes, he, he has to play the three, 300,000 too. So it's like a double jeopardy. That's how it works, you know, so don't sign it, but it's in there all the time. And, you know, for this uh, big corporate medical group, it's in there for fraudulent billing, which, by the way, like half of you are doing when you're saying that you're, you know, seeing the the NP and PA's patients that you're not seeing. So um, <laughs> it's it's really like a very slippery slope. So um, anyway, that's how it works. If you see that in there, you see any language like that, you got to be really careful. And all the more reason that you need to have somebody who knows what they're doing look at these contracts because it can be really shifty language. You know, it would really be interesting to see uh, how many of these claims that physicians make on behalf of seeing a patient with, in association with the PA really are on the physician's uh, <clears throat> NPI number. <clears throat> because, I, you know, that, that's been asserted, you know, multiple times. And, you know, it's, it's suggested that when you sign charts at the end of the shift of these people who you've never seen, but uh, your name's on the chart, that, that billing companies may be billing uh, as a physician visit. And I don't know that, I, honestly, that's, that's true. Um, I think in the vast majority of cases, that's probably not true. Um, it, it's, it's uh, I think that the case for making uh, the, the the assertion that that's a fraudulent billing practice is pretty, pretty obvious. 
you've never seen the patient in any any way. There are stipulations about that. So uh, that's been made in the past by other people on on this um, show over the years, and I think that um, I don't think that signing your name on the charts at the end of the visit uh, will result in a physician bill. Uh, for that visit necessarily, necessarily at all. And um, I just don't think we should put your name on charts of people that you've never seen because it, I, it, it's not clear to me why you would do that. Uh, but I don't think it's too fraudulently bill because I think that, you know, one of our other colleagues used to assert that with some frequency and it's just too obvious, it's too easy. It's, it would just be a no brainer to be a whistleblower in those cases. Well, and the other thing we've talked about, so I won't pick your fight on that one, although I don't agree, but um, <laughs> all the things we've talked about of- It's time to fight if you want to. <laughs> of people over-documenting review of systems and physical exam and how that's kind of fraudulently documented, you know, the vast majority of the time. Yes, I, no, I do so, agree. You know, you, we're, it's just setting yourself up here and- yeah, anyway. Well, fortunately, uh, in January, uh, there's a really nice present from the government coming in one way in that all those ch uh, check boxes go away. All the other, all the boxes that say uh, other system were checked in were negative. That line <coughs> was made on virtually every chart. That all goes away. And all you have to do now is a history and physical that is considered appropriate by the provider. Yeah. Uh, we're going back to just doing what you think ought to be done. And I think that that basically is going to increase the ability of people to just dictate a history and physical. And and I'm not quite sure, quite sure what that's going to do to the world of the scribes, to tell you the truth. Yeah. But in any case, um, <coughs> January 1st. All right. Um, moving on. So one more thing to talk about the force majeure clause. So, uh, force majeure is sometimes referred to as, let's see, it's this technically translates as a superior force. Sometimes people call this an act of God. An act of God is kind of a narrower reference because an act of God is really like a force of nature, like a hurricane or a flood or something. Whereas a superior force is really like anything that is kind of an unanticipated event that's beyond the party's control. So that could be, you know, not just a force of nature, but like that's listed here, an armed conflict, a government act, um, larger than a force of nature. And basically we're seeing these show up in contracts more where there's a clause in there that says that neither party is responsible for fulfilling the contract in the case of an, unantic an unanticipated event like this. And the reason that these have become more interesting is because in the case of COVID, people were backing out of their contracts and then these clauses started showing up and people were wondering, well, are our contracts kind of meaningless now because um, people can just walk away from their contracts at any point and blame, you know, things like COVID, which is going to be coming and going all the time. And so there's been a lot of talk about kind of how, how COVID affects this, what these clauses really mean. And it's a little bit unpredictable. So 
basically, um, while force majeure and COVID have not been defined in the, um, in the setting of a healthcare contract specifically that I could find, it has been related to contracts in like a civil engineering case. And in that case, they looked at the Black's Law Dictionary and they said, yes, um, it's, it's well defined that a natural disaster is a force majeure, an act of God, and a pandemic is a natural disaster. So probably COVID counts as a force majeure. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, though, is the pandemic, does it meet these other three elements that we typically apply to this? Is it unforeseeable? Is it external to the contracting parties? And is it serious enough to make it impossible um, for the parties to perform their contractual obligation? And the thing that courts are kind of deciding about is, is it unforeseeable? And the answer to that was probably different in 2020 than it is in 2023. And and so um, how courts interpret these clauses now, I, I think we don't really know because I think more and more people will say, you know, it's not really, you know, while we might have let people out of them in 2020 because nobody saw this coming in 2023, everybody saw this coming. And so you can't walk away. At the same time, um, even before people had these clauses or even in contracts that don't have force majeure clauses, you could be sitting on a contract you've been in for 10 or 20 years. Um, under Underlying every contract is this idea, this doctrine of impossibility that says if at any point it becomes impossible for the parties to perform their contract um, for whatever reason, whether that's an economic downturn, for whatever reason, they run out of supplies, they run out of patience, anything, that party is is free to walk away from it. That's that underlies every single contract that's that's ever been. And so whether you have a force majeure provision in your contract or not, the if if circumstances change so that a party can't fulfill its obligations, it's out of the contract. So if there's another big wave of COVID and your employer can't pay you, they don't have to pay you is kind of the the end game there. All right. Okay. So a few more. So uh, this one, this McFarland case, this is a case from Iowa. And this one, a cardiologist signed a three-year contract with a hospital. I actually like these ones. These ones basically say, if you don't, if you don't have the stuff written down, it's not enforceable. So this one signed a three-year contract with the hospital. And when he signed, they were like, yeah, we know this job sounds brutal, but we're going to hire another cardiologist so that you don't have to be on call 24 seven, you know, you can take vacation, whatever. So he signed on, but then they never hired another cardiologist. So after three years, he was like, like that was miserable. You told me you were going to hire another one. You never did. You know, I never got to take vacation. I was on call all the time. So he he hired, he sued them for breach of contract and punitive damages. And they argued, yeah, I know we never hired one, but like there are other cardiologists in town. You could have like befriended them. You could have tried to network with them and asked them if they would take call for you. So you could go on vacation or whatever, like that's on you. And, um, they went to court with it and the court, ruled in favor of the employer because none of this was written down. They never in writing said, we're going to hire another cardiologist. You're not going to have to be on call all the time. They just verbally assured him that they were going to do this, but it was not written. And so he lost that case. Um, this next one, White, is a Florida case. And this one, a pediatrician had a written contract for two years. But after one year, she went to a group and said, look, I'm ready to go. Um, let's change the contract so that like, you're going to let me out of it, and I'm going to leave when we hire a replacement. And so she, you know, kept working for them, hired the replacement, and she left. But 
she didn't get paid after she left for the time that she had been working since, since they modified the contract. And the group said, well, um, actually, we never modified the contract. You said you were going to work here for two years and you never did. And and you didn't. So actually, you breached the contract. And she was like, no, that's crazy. I talked to you about it. I told you I'd work here until we hired a replacement. We hired the replacement and then I left. And they were like, no, no, it never happened. That contract, that 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 conversation never happened. And they'd never written it down. They ended up going to court and they found some evidence that the group had been lying. But basically, bottom line is, you know, they had had this conversation and both the, the physician just assumed that they were going to kind of in good faith follow their word, but did not write it down. And the group, they ended up having a verdict for the physician. They paid her unpaid wages, almost $100,000 in attorney fees, though. As you can imagine, if the court didn't pay those attorney's fees, the, the pediatrician would have gotten her $25,000 in wages, but it would have taken her $100,000 to get them. So, you know, you can't assume you're going to get your attorney's fees paid back. Um, you've got to write it down. You've got to write it down. Um, and this next one, this family medicine physician signed a contract and they look, basically looked at his, his RVUs, his output from his previous group. And they were like, all right, we can expect this guy to make us a bunch of money. We're going to pay him $550,000 a year for 10 years based on what he's been doing. And he was like, that sounds amazing. Signed on for his contract. And after a year or two, they were like, oh crap, we calculated that wrong. We, we really, we really screwed that up. We're overpaying this guy. And so they changed the contract unilaterally and stopped paying him 550 a year. They reduced the salary to some amount. I'm not sure. And the failing physician sued him and said, wait a minute, I never agreed to this. I agreed to 550 a year. And so he sued them and they were like, yeah, but it was based on this, you know, this error in calculation, you know, and we changed the contract, but he's like, but I didn't change the contract. So they just unilaterally did it. And uh, so went to court and the jury agreed with them. And because it was unilateral and they were kind of being all deceptive about it, they gave him almost four and a half million dollars in a verdict and including a million dollar in punitive damages for just, you know, being trying to do it on their own and not having a conversation with him about it. Costly mistake. Yeah. Um. I'll do my like final recommendations. Basically, you talked about this one at the beginning, Rick. Basically, when you start a job, you have to anticipate it's going to end. I mean, nobody ever wants to start with that, but your job is going to end. And so when you read that contract, you have to go through it thinking about when this ends, when this ends, when this ends. And remember that, you know, everything we've talked about, these are all kind of generic things, but all the laws are local. Everything's a little bit different. Um, and so you know, this this was all very generic, but you really have to have an understanding of how things work in your local area. Um, I'm going to skip to that last point then is um, the way that you do that is you work with a lawyer, not just any lawyer, like not your friend that you went to college with, but an employment lawyer, maybe maybe a physician employment lawyer who really knows the laws in this area in that locale that you're with. And We'll sit down and review that contract with you. Maybe it costs you a thousand dollars. It's money so well spent to do that. Uh, if you're signing a contract without working with a lawyer, you're taking just stupid risks, and you know you're just going to dig yourself out of a hole later. So I can't give you any better advice than that. And then, you know, also know that you do have some wiggle room in these contracts. They might have, they might just be giving you this template contract that you know is this big group they just give to everybody and 
they might be open to you crossing stuff out, you know, removing stuff. They might not feel wedded to any of this language. There might be a lot of wiggle room and you don't know until you try. So again, work with a lawyer to try to modify it in the ways that, that fit your needs. And you might be surprised by how much flexibility they have. So are you accepting cases now? Heck no. No, I am not the lawyer you need. <laughs> um, that was terrific. Uh, a lot of good information. Hi, Ricky. Uh, my Ricky, my uh, oldest son just said hello. A lot of you know him uh, from our travels around. Put him on case, camera. Uh, actually, he, this was this is a, a really a quickie. But in any case, we have a few minutes left, and I would like to get into this uh, case. Maybe maybe it'll come up, and I, I'd like to hear from you folks about it as well. Um, this is a $75 million verdict. You don't see those very often. Um, and so let's let's just go through this. Uh, it, it involved an emergency physician and a radiologist. Those two are the two people who owe, owe the $75 million with 60% of it owed by the emergency physician in terms of what the judge uh, allocated. This is a jury trial. And it, 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 it didn't go well, uh, unfortunately. So there's a 32-year-old fellow who presented to the emergency department uh, with a series of uh, dizziness, headache um, kind of thing. Actually, he went to a chiropractor. Chiropractor adjusted his neck. You know where this is going already now. And um, the lawyer said that through a series of miscommunications and... Um, Delay in diagnosis, the treatment of a stroke uh, uh, that occurred the next day resulted in catastrophic brain damage where he developed the locked-in syndrome, which is, I looked up, uh, a lesion in the pons. An ischemic lesion in the pons is uh, with a locked-in syndrome, which means that the only thing that you can, can do is move your eyes. You can't do anything else um, in terms of muscular function, moving your hands, you can't talk, you can't swallow, you can't, all of these things you cannot do except move your eyes. So people have been able to communicate through moving their eyes and you, and you can blink. Uh, some can only move vertically, so can move in all directions. But bottom line is that this poor fellow, 32 years old, uh, got into this situ situation. Um, what do we have claim here? Did not adequately communicate. Oh, yeah. Okay. The radiologist supposedly did not adequately uh, communicate that there was a lesion on the CT of the head, which was apparently uh, rather obvious. Um, the emergency physician failed to inform the consulting neurologist of the chiropractic neck, neck adjustment. I mean, that's kind of like, um, wow. It's, because... And I think one of the reasons was is because this patient presented with not uh, necessarily typical symptoms beginning in association with the uh, uh, neck adjustment. He had symptoms prior to the neck adjustment. The, the uh, chiropractor then adjusted his neck and maybe made this all worse. The chiropractor and the patient settled uh, out uh, so there wasn't any trial involving uh, the chiropractor. Uh, she noted that the uh, this is the plaintiff uh, um, attorney that the, the our ER doctor did fail to use to 
to rule out a vertebral artery dissection and that um, the radiologist did not appreciate an indisputable acute or subacute vertebral or, um, basilar artery uh, occlusion. Uh, and because this person will need 24-hour uh, care for the rest of their lives, they came up with that amount. I don't know whether there was any anything other than this compensation for uh, future medical needs. Uh, there's a they made reference to another case involving spinal manipulation that that uh, they say yeah th these problems with spinal manipulations are uncommon, and I think it probably everybody would acknowledge that. Uh, but they can have near-fatal consequences. Uh, this past summer, a 28-year-old college student experienced four artery dissections after a chiropractic visit for a low back pain. She subsequently had a stroke, cardiac arrest, and patients survived but remained paralyzed. Um, the injuries would have been completely avoided because of the salute of medical providers, and they still missed what needed to be done. And had the stroke been done, noted earlier, this patient would have had a, more, a greater likelihood of living. Neck pain, a headache, and bouts of blurred vision and ringing in the ears began after exercise and and um, had been continuing for several days. That's the that's the issue in these cases. There are preceding symptoms, which, the, um, which are treated, quote unquote, with, by a neck adjustment. So it suggests that these um, dissections were uh, made worse, but not exactly. Uh, were, patient wasn't well when they came in. They came in with symptoms that were kind of strange to begin with. Uh, they say that malpractice awards don't get appealed that often but that this one would be likely to be appealed. I think that the, the take-home point for me in this case is that um, don't assume that these cases that are going to involve a chiropractic adjustment are going to have a patient collapse to the floor and are going to be a real straightforward, easy diagnosis. Sometimes they're, uh, they're quite murky. And um, in this case, the uh, the uh, physician did not even mention to the, to the neurologist that this had uh, had occurred maybe they, they didn't maybe they weren't aware of this um relationship between chiropractic neck adjustments and uh vertebral artery dissections and posterior um uh brains you know cerebellar kind of uh, visual dizzy um kind of uh, symptoms, 75 million. So I hadn't read about this. I was just reading about it as we were talking. Um, a couple interesting things. So the radiologist, I'm not quite sure what they found him at fault for. It sounds like he pointed out an abnormality, but maybe not the specific one. You know, the his lawyer said, you know, his job is to look for evidence of a fire and he pointed out the smoke. But I guess that wasn't good enough. Um, it's an interesting no, analogy. The, the, the attorney uh, for the patient said the radiologist uh, did not appreciate 
an indisputable acute or subacute vertebral artery uh, occlusion. Indisputable. But I guess he pointed out some abnormality that was, you know, concerning for stroke. So, okay. you know, right. there was, so they must have brought in a different expert that said, there it is, you know, in retrospect, but the radiologist pointed out something, you know, anyway, um, he pointed out the smoke. 40% anyway. or 75 million. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other allegation on here is the attorney said something like, you know, we're here because the emergency physician didn't tell the neurologist about this chiropractic adjustment. And then he went and altered the records to say that he did. And I've seen this over and over again in lawsuits that document alteration leads to these like really high punitive damages. Um, and they don't use the word punitive in here. You know, it's a civil suit and then the medical costs, but the, the numbers are certainly punitive. So that's just like a very common theme with document alteration. And I, we don't, I don't have the enough details to know when he altered the records or if that was like truly a deceptive thing that he did to go back and say, you know, yes, I told him about the chiropractic alteration in the records, but that was the allegation that he made is that the emergency physician was deceptive in altering those records and probably is part of what put him on the hook, which is something I, I talk about a lot that you've got to be so, so careful about going back and changing your records after the fact, especially once the outcome is known. And especially if you're doing an electronic medical record with where everything is timed uh, so that retroactively, it's very difficult to do uh, to do a really clean uh, alteration of the record. So well, you can't. It's all in the metadata. They know when you're when you're in there. You can It is impossible to change the record without without there being an electronic footprint. So. And we've been told that over and over, and this is kind of like when people were writing charts and dictating charts. This is not for the world of electronic medical records, this idea of even even thinking about changing them, because they basically discredit you in front of the jury. And if you're willing to lie about this part, what other parts of the chart or your behavior are you willing to lie about is basically how they make this case. I'm so happy that this uh, person who brought up this case uh, said, I have to say that the addition of Dr. Linder was a great move. I think it's, I think that's really nice of them. And I think that the addition of Dr. Linder was very nice. Thank you. Um, anything further that you want to talk about? Or do you have to uh, off and have lunch? Well, <laughs> well, I'll eat lunch. I have no problems with that. Uh, um, I'm out of here for the next two weeks. I'm headed to Portugal tomorrow. Uh, it's actually, it's a 10 rough days. life. Rough life, you. I'm gonna have to do it, but I, I must admit, I haven't been out of the country for oh, probably five years. Um, so, my my two brothers are going. Who many of you who uh, have run into me over the years know about my brother Mark, who works with me every day, and then my brother Chris, the veterinarian, who basically just had a um, a uh, dissection uh, with a cervical, yeah, you know, probably abscess done this weekend. It's like on on steroids and everybody antibiotic you can think of. Um, one other point. One other point. I also saw, oddly enough, an article about a 32-year-old uh, woman who uh, wanted to be euthanized. 
uh, oh, yeah. in so Belgium. She got euthanized. And she uh, had met all of the criteria that the Belgian government had in place to be euthanized. And it all began when she was in an airport with a group of her schoolmates. I think they were in high school. And a bomb went off in the airport. And although she was not hurt by the bomb physically, she was so um, distraught about the event that she uh, basically was chronically in severe anxiety, uh, depression. She was on 11, uh, she was taking uh, antidepressants 11 times a day. Uh, she had had several psychiatric hospitalizations prior to this uh, bomb going off. So it's kind of the case of the eggshell plaintiff uh, in from law school, the eggshell plaintiff. Vaguely, but okay. I don't well, some, people, some people are extrinsically more vulnerable than others. And this girl was extrinsically uh, more vulnerable than her other classmates with regard to the emotional reaction that she had to this uh, this thing. Yes, they had counseling for the other kids and, and the like, but this girl was really off the bell-shaped curve and was not able to be salvaged uh, over some period of time. And so she, she was competent. Her condition was not um, salvage, uh, uh, salvageable, and I was think, and there, I think there was one third thing that was part of the things that you had to be able to to prove by psychiatrists and the like, and they pr apparently proved everything that they were they were asserting, and she got euthanized. I, I, I just, I just read that, and I thought, what a desperate life that people uh, would be euthanized. Um, and I thought about it in this country and uh, in California there, you know, there's the ability to be uh, euthanized should you meet uh, criteria and hospitals have to be able to make it available, but they make it available in such a circuitous way that, that I think that um, they don't want this to occur in hospital, in a hospital setting. So it's like, um, although the laws are there, I think the laws are created so that they're not, they're not not used. And I connected the two of these cases. This person with the locked-in syndrome. Can you imagine living your life with your ability to move your eyes as the only thing that you can communicate with? Your your mentation is not normal. Your cognition, your hearing, is is normal. But uh, that's it. And so I I made it. There was kind of like a connection between these these two these two patients because I could easily see how somebody who was in locked in syndrome would throw in the towel. Did and you see the recent case? Note. Oh. Go ahead. There, there is a recent case maybe we can talk about next month about the anesthesiologist who is sued who is supervising four CRNAs and one of the people who is supervising was like a healthy maybe 30 some year old guy who was there for a lower extremity surgery and got had prolonged hypotension and now basically has the mentation of a one-year-old had a mm -hmm. you know neurologic injury from the from the prolonged hypotension because of the poor supervision and he had a an extensive a, a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the i think the anesthesiologist in the hospital for that model of care which is essentially the 
prevailing model of care now. But basically, the the court was saying we should think about that again. Well, yeah, I, I, one of the anesthesiologists at our hospital was held, criminally held. The, the negligence was at such a level that it was uh, that it went over the line and was viewed as a criminal case. Uh, that it, you know that. It, that is about manslaughter and those kinds of things and un- unintentionally being responsible for somebody's death because you uh, were not, you know, supervising as you should have been. So they're, they're, they're creepy cases for sure, but I'm not sure they analogize with PAs and MPs because that would really only be the case if you're not seeing this. And honestly, I think you ought to see those patients, but a lot of people disagree with me. They think that, well, you can see these patients could be seen by the PAs and MPs and they'll come to me when they need it. And but they, they don't but the model, it. the model is not there that they're working in a system where you're able to see all the patients. It's just well, not. I think you and I agree uh, that, yeah. that a doctor should see all the patients. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, I, but people are being put in a system where that's just not happening. And so like this court cases, it, you know, it's, it's one of hundreds where the courts are holding physicians and the hospitals accountable for that, for those systems. Yeah. Well, I think honestly they should. Yeah. I don't have a problem with it, but, um, but so many of our colleagues are in positions where they are very, very vulnerable to these. And what is their alternative? Because they go to the next hospital. It's the same system. Right. It's just such a, a hard place right now. Yeah, it's probably not a very popular view because, um, you know, our colleagues are often responsible for those systems uh, being like that so that physicians are not seeing the patients. So it's kind of like it's not a, a particularly popular view with PAs and MPs and it's probably not a particularly popular view with doctors. But I think I think the patients are paying a premium fee when they go to the emergency department and they deserve at, at least a look-see you know, by a doc. Um, I think that that is, would be viewed by mo- many people as uh, very kind of like uh, primitive uh, reasoning in, in the emergency department that they don't work that way anymore. Okay, friend, uh, thanks so much. And I thought your talk at ASAP and I thought your talk today was, was good. <laughs> no, not, not bad. No, no, I thought it was very good. I learned a lot. Thanks so much. That wasn't that bad. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.